Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Failing U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Failing U.S. Centre's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke to Professor Taylor Fravel, who is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the MIT Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. As a part of the U.S. Center's U.S.-China seminar series, Professor Fravel joined us to discuss China's Belt and Road Initiative, what it means for the U.S., and how global institutions can fund infrastructure development. What exactly does the Belt and Road Initiative consist of? And who are some of the parties, and why did China decide to embark on this foreign policy initiative? Great. So thanks so much for having me here today. Uh, So the Belt and Road Initiative was first launched in 2013, then codified in 2015, and then sort of took off in 2017, uh, which is a long way of answering your question, which is when it was first sort of announced in 2013, I don't think China knew what it was other than a series of sort of ambitions for greater connectivity, both in the maritime direction and uh, sort of overland, um, you know, sort of looking west from China and not looking east uh, towards the United States. And then it sort of gradually took form. uh, The sort of a report was produced called Visions and Actions by the National Development Research Council, the NDRC. If I've got that right, I I just always know the acronym NDRC. Um, So it sort of then set in place this sort of vision of greater connectivity, uh, but focusing around facilitating um, trade through investment and sort of anchoring China's economy more globally. And so since then, I guess the first country started joining around 2014. I think over 141 countries have joined by the end of 2021. There may have been a few more this year. Uh, Sort of the slogan Belt and Road Initiative or in Chinese, Yidai Ilu, has been incorporated also into sort of statements from multilateral agencies such as the UN. Um, and part of sort of what my research is doing is actually trying to unpack, well, what does this mean, right? So you so you sign on, uh, and what are you committing to? Um, and as sort of one stream in this sort of research project I have shows, um, we sort of make the argument that it's very easy for states to sort of formally sign on. All they have to do is assign a memorandum of understanding, which is a three to five page document, which is completely noncommittal in nature. It simply expresses an intent to continue to discuss uh, cooperation under the sort of this framework. And so as China rolled it out, I think it was initially sort of viewed as sort of having a sort of very strongly, a very strong economic core uh, as a way of, of also sort of improving ties with other countries. And then it kind of became uh, in sort of classic Chinese policymaking sense, sort of everything, right? So you had the polar Silk Road, uh, the digital Silk Road, and you had all these sort of functional um, parts of the Belt and Road, as well as the sort of six main kind of uh, areas in which it was going to sort of take place sort of ge- geographically. Um, and that I think makes it harder to understand what the Belt and Road is because when it's everything, it's nothing, right? Right. Or it just becomes a synonym for China's foreign policy and sort of external engagement. And sort of in my view, we should just refer to it as China's foreign policy and external engagement and then analyze it right in the functional domains where we would typically analyze the state's sort of foreign policy and external engagement. But it has sort of taken on this life of its own as sort of being this big initiative of the BRI. Um, and it has also then generated concern uh, among particularly the advanced industrialized uh, nations in the world, uh, most notably in my country, the United States, but also elsewhere, about what this might mean sort of for greater Chinese influence. But I think if you want to understand how much influence it actually generates, you have to be able to measure what it is, right? And so you need kind of like conceptual clarity 
and then sort of social science speak, need to figure out a way to operationalize that or measure it. Uh, and so part of at least what sort of the research I've been doing lately has been sort of trying to sort of move in that direction, which is not to say the Belt and Ro Road is not important. I think it's quite important. But one has to sort of find a way to analyze it uh, and to gain kind of analytical traction. What are some of the ways that China does exert its influence onto the member states of the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, I, th I think it's the power of attraction, at least that it was initially, this idea that China was going to spend a trillion or had a trillion dollars, it was going to sort of dole out in investment and, and sort of infrastructure projects. And so I think particularly among the nations of the developing world, this was seen as quite attractive, right? Uh, because their global demand for infrastructure greatly exceeds supply, but the only way to close the gap is through spending a lot of money. China, uh, given its stage of development and for a variety of other factors, had a lot of sort of capital it could put to work more than um, you know, countries like the United States. And so I think that was kind of the, the main attraction for these countries. And that, in a way, over time, and this is something we try to probe in kind of the research we're doing, but over time it would sort of allow, it might be the case that countries that want to receive uh, greater sources of investment from China in turn will sort of moderate their policies to be more consistent with Chinese preferences, right? And then you would kind of have in it sort of this idea that influence was actually taking shape or influence was occurring because countries were doing something they might not otherwise do, which is to sort of alter their preferences in a way consistent with China for this sort of stated aim of receiving a greater uh, investment uh, you know, from China or perhaps greater access to you know, China's growing uh, economy and its market um, or other things that they might desire that, that China has. So since the program began in 2013, several countries such as Malaysia, Bolivia, Kazakhstan, Costa Rica, and Cameroon have canceled their Belt and Road projects, often citing concerns about overpricing, debt, and corruption. Is the program losing momentum? So the program uh, has gone through, I think, two or three phases. A, a, a colleague of mine in the United States who teaches uh, at BU, Minya, has sort of this idea of BRI 1.0, 2.0. I think she now may be working on 3.0. So I don't want to take credit for any of this. This is her kind of way, way of thinking about how China itself conceptualizes uh, the BRI. But I think it, went, you know, it started strong in 1.0, and then there was some pushback, and so you've got 2.0. Um, you know, there were concerns about increasing debt levels in countries, uh, the, the lack of transparency about terms, environmental impact of Belt and Road projects, you name it. And one country, you know, even Romania, right, decided not to renew its BRI MOU and sort of withdraw, sort of formally at least, uh, from the initiative uh, overall. Uh, so I think what, what you see happening is a couple of things. One, one byproduct of labeling its external engagement as the Belt and Road was to attract more attention to China's external engagement, uh, and in particular on the economic side. Since this was sort of associated with uh, greater levels of sort of lending and investment, uh, there was a lot more to look at. And then some sort of very high profile cases such as the port um, in Sri Lanka at Hamantota. Um, at the same time though, China began to put in place capital controls or greater capital controls in 2017 and sort of total amount of foreign inv investment and lending declined sort of quite significantly. And that was not just related to the Belt and Road, but had a big impact on the Belt and Road if you in initially viewed it as basically a source of uh, increased uh, investment or, or financing for infrastructure. Uh, and so I think China has now putting much less money to work. It's not just a function of sort of the pushback it got on specific projects, but also that it's decided to sort of have greater control over its external capital flows for reasons that are somewhat unrelated to the Belt and Road. But nevertheless, I think will shape how the Belt and Road sort of progresses in the future, which means that I, I would say the initial Belt and Road 1.0 has lost its momentum. 
And if we're moving into 3.0, it basically it's being redefined, right? Since it is Xi Jinping's signature initiative, it will never go away, right? It will, we will always have the Belt and Road. And, and so the question is, I try to ask as a, a social scientist studying China is, well, what, what does this actually mean, right? And so if it gets redefined as kind of a new thing, then we're going to have to sort of study it as a new thing. In many ways, the research that I've been doing with my, my, my team at MIT has been sort of looking at sort of basically Belt and Road 1.0. But since there are so many claims made about how this was going to increase Chinese influence, we thought, well, this is a great opportunity to use some social science tools to see if that is in fact the case. And not to preview the findings, since it will hopefully be in a paper that someday soon when we finally satisfy reviewer two that we've addressed all of their concerns, that uh, we'll be able to sort of show why we think, you know, sort of the economic impact on participating states has been quite uneven. But if you believe that sort of influence follows the money, if you will, then that also means that sort of potential for China to have this tool of, of greater economic interaction to, to be able to exert greater influence is probably also going to be quite uneven. So does the Belt and Road Initiative pose geostrategic threats or a geostrategic threat to the US? And if so, how? So this goes back to the initial definitional question of what it is, right? So if it is just another way of talking about China's foreign policy and external engagement, that's obviously a clear challenge to uh, many countries in the world, including the United States. If you view it more specifically as a as an infrastructure investment initiative, it would not sort of appear to be as much of a challenge today because the investment levels have dropped quite significantly. So what I think it will all sort of mean in the end, like, is that this is a way in which China is able, along with other tools it's using in the dip diplomatic realm, to increase its general position of influence within uh, different regions that we would characterize as being part of the developing world, even though the actual levels of development vary, but basically not the OECD countries. And so this would be uh, a way in which China engages Africa, engages uh, the Middle East, engages Latin America and the Caribbean, and even engages the Pacific Islands. And I think as the US-China kind of friction grows, right, with sort of the dominant power and the rising power and Without, there's nothing inevitable about how this will turn out, but there's what is sort of inevitable, at least I think there's going to be greater friction, right? So as you have greater friction here, China is looking for ways to anchor its position in the world. And I think maybe five years ago, China may have believed it could, or at least had a, a, a strategy of attempting to sort of drive a wedge between the United States and Europe, and thus sort of drive a wedge into the sort of the heart of the OECD kind of countries. I think that project is met a lot of headwinds for reasons unrelated to the Belt and Road and probably this podcast. But uh, that's been much harder for China to do, especially as it decided to sort of get much closer to Russia and declare right before the invasion of Ukraine, no limits to how the Russia-China relationship could develop, which means that China is essentially left kind of from a geopolitical standpoint with bolstering its position in areas that are characteristically viewed as sort of for the developing world. So that, if Belt and Road is a vehicle, generally speaking, for improving ties with these regions. And I think that will be kind of the main impact. And we could think of subsidiary impacts too, in terms of whether or not the Belt and Road sort of investments and activity create new economic interests that China believes it would need to generate military power to secure. And these are also have to be new economic interests that are unique to the Belt and Road, right? Not again, not if it's just part of China's general external engagement, I wouldn't necessarily say that is that is still a challenge. It's just not specifically a Belt and Road challenge. But to the degree these projects are identified as something that needs to be secured, or there are more Chinese citizens working on these projects who need uh, protection, uh, given 
sort of the volatility in some of the countries in which China has made significant investments, then I think you would, I think the United States would view that as a means through which China is gauging a kind of a kind of global military expansion, although not one of sort of conquest, right? Sort of 21st century style military expansion. So during this past summer, uh, President Biden and members of his administration traveled to different parts of the world from countries in sub-Saharan Africa to islands in the South Pacific to outline the ways the U.S. will invest in different infrastructural projects. Can the U.S. rival China in this area of global outreach? Or does the U.S. need to become comfortable to playing maybe second fiddle to China's growing influence in the developing world? Great question. So I think if one looks at this purely in monetary terms, it would be hard for the U.S. or for even other G7 nations to sort of rival China sort of dollar for renminbi, right? I mean, China China is able, if it wants to, to mobilize a, a sort of significant financial resources. Uh, but I think the U.S., depending on the region, has a lot of other things to offer if it chooses to pay more attention to these regions. And so we saw this in the South Pacific or the Pacific Islands, which I think had been kind of ignored for the most part uh, by the United States in the last decade or two. This is not really quite my area, but the United States did not have much of a diplomatic presence in the Solomon Islands. Uh, China made um, sort of or established a, a significant presence in, in the last few years after uh, the Solomon Islands uh, changed diplomatic recognition from, from Taiwan to China. Uh, but what you can see is that the United States ha has this ability to come in um, and sort of make a slightly different pitch, which is one that maybe has a different kind of appeal. I think China often tries to work through local elites and and find out kind of what they want and give them what they want, um, whether it's, you know, a new football stadium or a port in the case of Sri Lanka, what have you. Whereas the United States at least is trying to come in and say, hey, look, we recognize climate change is a really serious issue for you. Say in the Pacific Islands, we recognize overfishing is a really significant issue for you. So we're going to try to address these challenges as you see them um, and not necessarily just come in and sort of provide new things. So I think you're going to see a lot of competition in business world-like sense, where I think for lots of these regions, uh, the U.S. and China are going to have slightly different products, right? And they're going to try and see which one uh, gains more traction. Also, in parts of, you know, the developing world, uh, if one looks at the stock of investment versus sort of new flows, you know, in Africa, the U.S. is still a larger investor in terms of overall stock than China, at least the last time I checked. Um, so caveat, I may be incorrect. I don't have the, the, the numbers here at the tips of my fingers. But, but if one looks at it in that sense, right, then you have a set of sort of longstanding relationships, which the U.S. has, which it can certainly focus on going forward. I think where the U.S. recently has fallen short is in its diplomatic presence. Um, not, and this is not just in relation to Pacific Islands, but probably in more parts of the developing world, which is, which is in contrast to the Chinese approach, which has been to focus quite significantly on, ha on sort of having the strongest ties it can with everyone around the world, regardless of any other characteristics these countries might have, and, and sort of, you know, no strings attached kind of diplomatic ties. And, and that is, I think, paid real dividends for China because they're always present. Um, and so it makes it easier for their voice to be heard. And I think one area where the U.S. Uh, could do better in this kind of uh, competition with China simply to be more present so that alternatives that are, that are available from the United States or that are available through public and private partnerships with U.S. firms can for, sort of be more readily kind of sort of showcased and advertised. Yeah, I think you've covered a little bit of this, but I'll ask it anyway, because in case you want to expand. So during the 2021 G7 summit, the Build Back Better World Initiative was announced as a potential response to the Belt and Road Initiative. 
Since that time, the name has been abandoned and it's not really clear whether the same unified resolve to counter China's infrastructural might is present. So if the US can't compete with China in the developing world through big infrastructure projects, how can it compete? So on Build Back Better World, it basically was a branding problem, which is to say that President Biden's domestic initiative was known as Build Back Better, but he couldn't get everything passed by Congress. It ended up becoming the Inflation Reduction Act, although it was mostly about climate and some other issues. And so for purely political reasons, they decided they could no longer have a domestic Build Back Better and a Build Back Better World. But I think the the same sets of activities that the G7 were working on are still going to be moving ahead. You know, again, f- kind of focusing more on, on high quality infrastructure and high quality loans. It'll be at a, you know, lower levels uh, probably than what China is doing. But I think the idea is to ensure that there are alternatives uh, to countries who want them. Um, and it may also paradoxically through this competitive sort of mechanism uh, enhance the quality of Chinese lending because they might need to compete with different kinds of terms that... Uh, other potential lenders are making available. But again, I don't, I don't see this if we're just measuring kind of investment dollars alone, something where at least the U.S. as a country will be able to mobilize that much capital simply because it would have to be approved by Congress. Um, and we all know how Congress functions and you know, when they are, are not willing to spend money and spending money on foreign affairs is really something that uh, is kind of a low priority uh, for the most part, unless it's related to the defense budget, in which case... Um, Generally, it has no problem. So I, I suppose, and this is tongue in cheek, um, but maybe if we made if, if we made uh, you know, infrastructure investment part of 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 the DoD, uh, then it would probably be easier uh, to have have more more funding. But even then, I think I, I sort of say that in jest. But but even then, right? I think um, the U.S. is going to be sort of competing in a slightly different way as we've discussed. Should the U.S.'s focus on making use of global institutions like the World Bank to fund infrastructure development? So should they make use of that? kind of pathway. Yeah, I think I think the World Bank is an avenue, regional development banks are another avenue, bilateral is another avenue, G7 is another avenue. I mean, I I think you know, they each have their own kind of foci and quirks and way in which they work, which is to say that I think we wouldn't see just one of them becoming uh, the emphasis, but I I wouldn't I mean, I guess personally speaking, I think it would be a good idea to to continue to work through uh, the World Bank in these areas, but you know, one aspect of Chinese lending is it is often, or they can reach a decision more quickly, right? Um, and so, you know, the World Bank is not necessarily known as a, you know, for its efficiency <laughs> as a large organization. Uh, and so I think, you know, one could at least entertain ways in which perhaps from the lending side uh, that some of the processes uh, in place that, that seem to sort of protract the period for making a determination on a loan could be be accelerated, not without reducing the quality, of course, but but I think if we, if we think about reinventing government, you know, a slogan from Al Gore in the 1990s, right? If you think about reinventing the World Bank a bit um, as well, I mean, it, it, I wouldn't sort of, I wouldn't be complacent about about sort of how it functions today and saying that's sort of it's optimized in, in order to sort of be an alternative channel for investment. I think I want to sort of combine two points that you made for my question. One was the earlier point with regards to influence, and the second is with regards to what the United States can do. I've seen quite a few reports and surveys, particularly in Southeast Asia, where a lot of the general public are quite concerned with the growing influence of China through these infrastructure projects, and actually they're more open to American influence than they are to Chinese influence. Do you think 
that the United States, because it's able to talk about these global values, you know, being the sort of the harbinger of the international order, do you think the United States should focus more on or lean more into this value system, something that China can't do? And do you think that it does carry as much currency as sort of the the hard power aspects of 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 influence that China is able to exert in different parts of the world? That's a great question. I think it's, tr- it's a tricky one to answer. And if you read the most recent national security strategy of the United States, which came out 18 months later than it should have, it on the one hand, it sort of cast, right, the U.S., is in this struggle with autocracy and democracy, but then said there there are going to be some autocracies we we're going to work with, but our interests align, and so I think that the challenge with really leaning into the values, especially the political values that you discuss um, in your question that you raise in your question, would be that um, it might not have broad appeal, even within Southeast Asia. Right, you've got a pretty wide variety in terms of political systems in Vietnam as one example, right, which is still a communist or still socialist state, right, led by a communist party. Singapore, Malaysia, level of democracy there may not be the same as it is is elsewhere. So I think instead of really leaning into the political values, uh, it may be um, more effective um, in the region, at least for the U.S. to lean into maybe a subset of these values associated with transparency, associated with predictability, associated with sort of working from a set of sort of commonly agreed upon rules or standards for whatever the particular issue might be, uh, because that's a way in which uh, states, regardless of their political system, can see how they may or may not benefit um, from right, those rules, for, for example. If you take maritime disputes, a subject near and dear to my heart, and realize not the subject of the podcast, but you open the door with a reference to Southeast Asia, right? Uh, you know, the general set of rules in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea are ones in which most of the littoral states to the South China Sea would like to see applied in their disputes with China. Uh, and this is despite kind of the wide variety of political systems of the states that have claims in the South China Sea. So I think that's an example where, where you, could, you could have, um, so long as it's kind of agreed upon by the main actors um, or, or the main sort of countries in the region, you, you could sort of focus on having that kind of sort of open, that transparency predictability, if you will, in whatever the domain might be. But I think if you lean too hard into values, right, and you lean too hard in this democracy versus autocracy, you're going to have a lot of uh, countries who may not want to sort of, number one, buy into that framing, or number two, may not view it to be sincere if, if their political system maybe is less democratic than, than some of the other ones. And so I think that that's a very neat binary but uh, as we also know in the study of you know, political science, right, there's wide variety in, in non-democratic sort of forms of government um, as well. And so to have this like autocracies are not all the same. And even within democracies, we know there's a wide variety of sort of democratic systems too, even if in general, they're probably a bit more similar than, than, than the autocracies. And so I think the key is to find a way to build coalitions on key issues across kind of the relevant stakeholders or the relevant sets of states uh, in highlighting the political values in particular may not uh, resonate in regions where there's a lot of diversity in political systems. Great. Well, I think that's all we have time for this afternoon. Thanks so much for speaking to the Bullpack today. Thanks so much for having me. Taylor Fravel is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the MIT Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And that's it for this extra inning of the Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Taylor Fravel for joining us in this episode. 
This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Rohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. A theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter.lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.